this is a, a scary time for our country because a lot of things are changing very quickly and it can be a little bit hard to predict what's going to happen. But we can plan ahead for ourselves, for the people we care about, and that's going to make this a little bit easier. Hello and welcome to another episode of Connecting ALS. I am one of your hosts, Mike Stevenson in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm joined by my friend and colleague in North Carolina, Jeremy Holden. Uh, how are you doing this week, Jeremy? Doing great, Mike. How are you? Feeling pretty good. Starting to acclimate myself to the remote working environment. I know many of our listeners out there are probably doing the same thing. Strange times that we're living in, but it, it feels like as a community, we're starting to figure this thing out a little more in terms of how we respond and stay safe. And I'm encouraged by that. Yeah, I think aside from doing more crossword puzzles in the last couple of weeks than I've done in the last few years, it is starting to feel weirdly like a sense of normalcy is setting in, which which is a good thing, I think, you know, kind of calms the mind a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I'm glad to hear that you're staying busy with the crossword puzzles. Listen, they are, uh, they're addictive. I, I think I'm going to need, <laughs> <laughs> we'll need an intervention on the other side of this. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk more about that. This week, we had the pleasure to speak with two different experts about the ongoing pandemic with two very different perspectives in terms of of the topics we discussed. First, we spoke with Dr. Baron Lerner from NYU and really examined the pandemic from a historical perspective with his specialty and one of his focuses in bioethics. Really fascinating conversation, Jeremy, of what we learned from how we can apply what's happening today with COVID-19 to some of the historical examples that have taught us things throughout the years. I've been reading a lot lately about COVID, as I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners have been. And, and, and one of the kind of narrative pieces that have been popping up is this, this question of, of rationing and, and strain on the healthcare system. And I know some states have posted guidance for triage policies. Some of them have proven controversial. So very timely to hear from Dr. Lerner about some historical examples of the healthcare system dealing with uh, with some similar issues just with you know with different disease causes but similar kind of issues of, of bioethics his perspective is really valuable i'm excited for our listeners to hear that the second half of our show is going to be an interview with dr neil thacker the chief mission officer at the als association and those of you who have been listening to connecting als have heard from dr thacker before he's an expert on really all things als and we asked him first kind of what he's hearing from the als community about ongoing needs and concerns during the pandemic and then uh, some more specific questions about the topics that Jeremy just mentioned, healthcare scarcity, how to prepare for a hospital visit, what you should do if you feel like you're experiencing symptoms that are associated with COVID-19. Again, so much useful information in that interview. I think this is a uh, jam-packed show. Yeah, I think I better just get out of the way and we can listen. Yeah, let's, let's first dive into that interview with Dr. Baron Lerner from NYU. We are fortunate to be on the phone today with Dr. Baron Lerner of NYU Langone Medical Center. Thanks so much, Dr. Lerner, for taking the time to join us today on Connecting ALS. My pleasure. And before we dive into some of the pandemic-related questions that we have for you, doctor, can you give our audience a little bit of background on your role at NYU as well as maybe a simple introduction into the world of bioethics because we know that's a big part of your work? Yes, I'm a practicing internist at Bellevue Hospital, which is the public hospital associated with NYU. So I see primary care patients. 
And then my academic title, as you said, is at NYU, where I'm a professor. And a lot of what I do is write about and teach bioethics. So that's really the field of medicine that looks at tricky problems that happen either as far as experiments or in the clinic and how to try to make the right decisions for doctors and patients when we confront these problems. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, there are 728,000 hospital beds in the United States. That works out to a little more than two hospital beds per 1,000 people. I think I'm getting these numbers right. Now, that level of scarcity obviously built into the system. We don't anticipate 328.2 million people getting sick critically on the same day. Now, obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic, we're starting to see some real strain on those finite resources. So what are the ethical questions that come into play in that environment? Well, one thing we would say at the start is that most health practitioners, doctors and nurses are always advocating for their patients first and foremost. So when someone's in the hospital and they're sick, and there are resources available, we push as hard as we can to try to get our patients what they need. What makes this situation different is there's the potential for there not being enough resources. So there may be so many sick patients, and we're seeing this a little bit at some of the New York hospitals, that there may be a need to ration the available technology. In other words, give certain patients an available technology and deprive other patients that technology simply because there's not enough there. So that's a big bioethical issue that has come up in the past in other areas of medicine, but is front and center right now with the COVID epidemic. Uh, doctor, thank you for you know explaining it in that way. You have published a number of articles over the years throughout your career on historical examples of controversial periods in medicine and medical research from a bioethics perspective. In your opinion, what can some of those past examples teach us about how we should be approaching the current scenario with the pandemic? Well, it's funny. I've been developing a, a sort of syllabus for the medical students because this has all of a sudden become such a hot topic and they're much more interested in history and ethics than they ever were. Two of the examples that I've been using historically in teaching them, one was a famous uh, incident in Seattle in the early 1960s where they had just invented a way to give kidney patients uh, with kidney failure hemodialysis for the first time. And now that's routine for people who, whose kidneys are failing. You put them on a dialysis machine, but there were only a small number of dialysis machines in Seattle. And the medical society there decided to get a committee of ordinary citizens to decide which people in Seattle should get the small number of ventilators. And very long story short, the committee was very devoted and dedicated, but wound up basically selecting people using value judgments. They picked people who had big families. They picked people who went to church. They picked people who had certain jobs. So that's one of the historical examples we use to try to remind us not to use value judgments when we're dealing with our patients to try to give all patients an equal chance. The second example we use is transplantation. So they're has been for a long time, unfortunately, not enough transplant organs to go around. So every right. day we have to decide who gets a liver, who doesn't, who gets a heart, who doesn't, where they should go on the list. 
And there we've tried building on the Seattle experience to give these organs out in the way they're most useful. How will we save as many lives as we can and give them to people who are apt to live the longest with those organs? It's a very utilitarian concept. Both of those examples, I think, help us try to decide what we might do were we short, for example, of dialysis machines now or ventilators for COVID patients. It's oddly almost reassuring to hear that the health system has gone through similar situations before dealing with strain on the system. And, you know, we've come through, we can learn from that. So how do those decisions then get made today? What's the guidance when impossible decisions do have to be made? Well, most hospitals have come up with some type of a triage system. New York State, for example, has one that they've come up with for this type of situation. And Hospitals either have their own or are trying to tweak the New York state guidelines. So there's been a lot of discussion of this. And among the points that have been stressed is you shouldn't be discriminated against. So just because, for example, you're a certain age or you have a certain disease or you have a certain disability, you should not necessarily be dropped to the bottom of the list. Now, that doesn't mean those factors aren't relevant because if they're way into your ability to survive the bad pneumonia that we get with COVID. So medically, you're not as good a candidate. That would be something that's relevant, but they shouldn't be the determinative factor. The other thing about this particular epidemic that is a potential challenge would be the idea that we would actually take someone off a ventilator and give it to someone else. That's gotten a lot of discussion in the world of ethics. Normally, we don't do that when we have enough resources. If you go on a ventilator and you still have a chance of recovery, we keep you on the ventilator because we got enough ventilators. But this pandemic at least raised the scenario where, because there would be so many patients and not enough ventilators, would you consider taking somebody off a ventilator that wasn't doing well, that might not recover and give it to someone who was earlier in the disease with a better chance of recovery. That is the sort of thing that's been alluded to in these earlier examples, but it's nothing we ever do on a day-to-day basis. So the notion of doing that's very daunting. It is. It's frightening to think about, and we can only hope that with the current guidelines in place that we can do our best to prevent many more of those kind of decisions having to be made right now with what's going on with COVID-19. It seems like hindsight can be a dangerous thing in evaluating these kinds of ethical situations from decades ago, because at the time, those medical professionals were probably facing contextual pressures that we don't always take into account or know about. And of course, they didn't have the volumes of information and data that we have now all these years later. How do you kind of explain that to your students, whether you're applying it to what's going on with the pandemic or just in general. Yeah, that's a big topic. You know, any historian trying to teach history makes that point very clearly. What we're not trying to do when we look back at these historical examples is judge by our modern standards. So just to go back to that Seattle example, for us to say, oh, those people in Seattle were so naive or stupid or classist, and they just pick people like themselves to get 
dialysis. Well, they did in large part do that, but to judge them from our modern perspective, you don't learn a lot. What you do try to learn is how did those people in that particular situation make their decisions? And those are the sorts of factors that are always still at play. So factors like economic status, factors about pressures, cultural pressures, needing to help, wanting to help people you know, not understanding other people's disadvantages. Those are the sorts of things that we continue to struggle with and can learn from the past experiences of how others try to deal with it and then incorporate those conflicts into our modern thinking. An important point that strikes me as, as you say that doctors don't want to be in this position, right? I mean, this isn't, these aren't questions that doctors want to be asking and debates that they want to be having. What should patients know? What's your advice for patients who are thinking, this cough is pretty bad. I think I have to go to the hospital. What do patients need to know? Just to your first point, I, because it raised a point that's very important. The doctors who would be making these decisions is not the doctors taking care of you. So that would be very hard for both the doctors and the patients to not think that their doctor wasn't doing everything they could for them. So most hospitals have come up with a system where there'd be a panel of other physicians and experts helping with these decisions, which is ethically very appropriate. You know, what I'd say to patients is the good thing about having this discussion in advance is that were this to happen, People have been thinking about it. People are thinking about how to use resources as best as possible. And people are trying to be as transparent as possible. The other great advantage to these discussions coming out about proper use of ventilators is that we're also encouraging patients and their doctors to have meaningful discussions in advance about how aggressive they might want their care to be. So let's say, for example, you're a patient in your 70s and you have some COPD from smoking in the past and you come down with COVID, you might want to tell your doctors, look, if I get so sick with COVID and I have such bad lung disease to start with and you think you're never going to be able to get me off the ventilator, then don't keep me on the ventilator or don't put me on the ventilator in the first place. I don't want to die in a ventilator. It's a chance to discuss your illnesses more broadly in the context of COVID and what your goals are. Those goals might be very different than someone who was healthy in their 40s or 50s, for example, and got COVID. Well, you might want to be more aggressive there. So, you know, one thing I would say to patients, if you are having respiratory problems, if you've got to be admitted to the hospital, or even worse to the ICU, try to have to think more broadly about technology and what you might want or not want and try to communicate this to your doctors in advance before there is any sort of crisis. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for clarifying both of those points, doctor. It's also good to know that if you're experiencing worse symptoms than this, you shouldn't simply stay at home and, and hope for the best. There are technologies available for us to use to help people breathe. There's some of these medications that are controversial that people are using. So absolutely, if you're concerned that you're not feeling well, call your doctor, go to an emergency room. And the good news is people are very ramped up to address your problem and tell you what you do and don't need. So 
it might be scary to think about going out of your house and going to the doctor now when everybody's telling you stay at home, stay at home. But if you do have worrisome symptoms, it is crucial to call your doctor and get some advice about what you should and shouldn't do. Thank you so much, Dr. Lerner, for that really insightful perspective on both your bioethical background in medicine as well as a practicing medical professional with your experience with COVID-19. I really think that our audience is going to find this very helpful. Glad to help out. Thanks again, Dr. Baron Lerder at NYU for a fascinating look into some historical examples of, of bioethics in the healthcare field and really kind of putting into context some of the, the questions that healthcare practitioners and, and some of their regulatory agencies are dealing with today. And as promised, we followed up that conversation with another, with Dr. Neil Thacker, Chief Mission Officer at the ALS Association. Dr. Thacker gets into some specifics about how the pandemic is impacting the ALS community. Let's hear from him now. We are joined on the phone by Dr. Neil Thacker, Chief Mission Officer at the ALS Association. Dr. Thacker, you are becoming a regular contributor on Connecting ALS. Thanks for bringing your expertise to the table once again. Oh, thank you, guys. It's nice to talk to you. It's great to have you back. We we had a conversation earlier with Dr. Baron Lerner from NYU, who gave us a look at the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic from a broader bioethics perspective. It was, it was fascinating, really. And, and we wanted to talk to you, Dr. Thacker, about how some of the decisions being made at the state and federal levels, and even within hospital systems themselves, are impacting the ALS community. But before we get too deep into that, can you share anything about what you've been hearing from families living with ALS about kind of their biggest needs or concerns or questions at this point? Well, I think the biggest concern that everyone has is that they or someone in their home is going to get COVID-19. Mm. And so I hear about families working really hard to practice social distancing, to be really careful about everyone they come into contact with. And that does cause some complications with their care. Sometimes people are worried about family coming to visit or care workers coming to visit. And I think those are all really smart things to be concerned about. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hearing some really nice stories about people engaging over media through you know online and video chat. And I think it's really nice that people are still finding a way to be connected and engaged uh, without being in physical proximity. With that in mind, if somebody with ALS does start to develop symptoms that they feel is consistent with what we've come to understand as COVID-19 symptoms, what should they do? What's their first call? What, what would you tell someone if they asked you, said, hey, I think this, this seems like it might be COVID-19. What, what should I do? We would recommend that they contact their primary care doctor, someone, a physician who, who knows them, if their symptoms aren't very severe. And then that person, that clinician can advise them on how to go forward. Of course, if someone has a really high fever, or some serious trouble breathing, a lot more shortness of breath or trouble breathing than normal, then they, they do need to call 911. But they also need to let their EMS team know, the people who are taken to the hospital and the people in the emergency room know that they have ALS. Yeah, that's a big part of it, of course. Yeah, and it's also important anytime you're talking about going to a, a clinic, a hospital, or having the ambulance workers come to you, you should let them know that you think you may have COVID-19 and definitely that you have ALS. 
as everyone's ALS knows, it's an unusual disease that not everyone in the health system knows how to manage. And so we can talk, if you like, about some of the things that people can do to prepare themselves, their caregivers, and the clinical staff that they're going to be encountering. So mistakes are less likely to happen. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Dr. Thacker, just from that perspective, you mentioned preparedness and are there proactive steps that families living with ALS, uh, caregivers, loved ones should be taking to stay particularly safe or prepare for different scenarios? Like you mentioned, going into a hospital or clinic, is there information they should be bringing with them, questions they should be ready to ask once they arrive? Yeah, I think there's some things people could do even now, even if they don't think they have COVID or they're going to get it and they're feeling pretty comfortable. This is still an opportunity to sort of plan for the worst case scenario. So everyone is prepared. And so if you go on our website, we recently had a blog about this. And a lot of this is just information we recommend anyway, since people may have medical emergencies and need to go to the hospital at the last minute. And so to prepare any documents ahead of time, including any special instructions or advanced directives, so you have those documents ready. To download resources like our association's medical information packet and information card, we also have a phone app that people can use to help convey information about the fact that they have ALS and they may have problems communicating and special management with oxygen and so forth. You also want to consider packing a go bag. So you or your caretaker can take it with you and it's ready to go with you on short notice if you have an emergency. Or if you live with a caregiver and you're dependent on them and they have an emergency, they need a go bag and then you need one for yourself So whoever comes in to take care of you has the material what they need to step in. And then, of course, every plan needs a backup because things don't always work the way that we hope they do. And so talking to your friends and your relatives about your plans and your backup care. And so things can happen more smoothly in what can sometimes be a chaotic time. Also, if you have a local fire department or a local ambulance squad, if you live in a relatively small area, it does make sense to contact them in advance and let them know that you have ALS and special needs. And so they can have a plan for that as well. You know, you may be the only person with ALS that they get to interact with. And so it might be good for you to contact them in the future. And then, of course, you know, there's the intermediate, right? There's the fact that you may have to go to the emergency room on short notice for for anything. It could be COVID or something else. But then also, it's just an opportunity if you haven't already to Think about your home care and the number of people who are entering your residence and letting them know if you have people who are helping with infusions or equipment or just maintaining the house or doing work around the house. Remind them that if they think they've been exposed or if they have symptoms to not enter the house unless they have special precautions and training and you're comfortable with what that is. Make sure that they're washing their hands upon entry before they touch you. It would be really helpful if caregivers have new, correctly fitting personal protective equipment, proper masks, proper gloves, if they're coming to work on you directly. And then after they leave, if you can wipe down the stuff that they've touched themselves, I think that that could be really important. Doorknobs, counters, medical equipment, screens, things like that. That, I think, is important that we think about it. People need this care. It's really important, and there's a way to do it safely. You touched on a lot of great resources there, and we can share those in the show notes so people can find them very easily. Dr. Thacker, you mentioned if you have to go to the clinic, if you have to go to the hospital, could be COVID-related, 
could be related to something else. One of the concerns that has risen in the discussion of the stress on the healthcare system is the number of beds available. And this has led to some concerns about, do people get put in the back of the line waiting for that? Are, are, are these real concerns? Is this something that the ALS community needs to worry about? Well, I I think it's a concern. It's a, it's a concern. It's a risk that could happen as our health systems get overwhelmed. I'm not hearing about it actually happening, but I think we need to be prepared that it might. And so we are concerned that some triage or rationing policies that hospitals or regions may need to put into place might unfairly deny medical care to people with ALS. And so this is not a concern that's unique to the ALS community, but it is a a potential risk for the ALS community. And so one of the things that we've been doing with the association is working with a lot of other groups, a lot of other disability groups, to make sure that any kind of rationing policies or triage policies are consistent with the law and are as fair as possible. And so one of the things we're fighting hard for is for every state and town and hospital to recognize that ALS, the diagnosis, should not be treated as an automatic criteria for excluding or including people into any kind of treatment, but rather everybody should be assessed individually, assessed on any number of factors that may be weighed in a triage decision. And of course, these are extreme decisions made under extreme circumstances. And like I said, it's very unlikely that anyone will be in this situation, but I think it's important that we are clear about what our standards are. And that is our standard, that no automatic decisions based on diagnosis. Everyone gets treated like an individual and their individual uh, factors need to be considered. Thank you for explaining it in that way, doctor. It's reassuring to know that those conversations are being had in terms of advocating for those living with ALS and really many other medical conditions out there in the world. Are there things that families uh, living with ALS and, and individuals living with ALS can do to proactively advocate for themselves in that situation? Should they be talking to their legislators? Should they be talking to their healthcare providers in advance? Or is it more of a a case-by-case basis? Well, you know, we're talking about a health system that could potentially get overloaded. And when it gets overloaded, it's not going to be overloaded for a long period of time, but for critical windows, narrow windows of time, where things might just get extremely chaotic in a specific hospital, in a specific emergency room. And you could hear that coming. For example, you might hear that hospitals are building overflow treatment facilities at a sports arena or, you know, some large indoor conference center or something like that, where they're making plans to treat people outside of the hospital because they're expecting a huge volume of people. And that's happening in some of the cities on the coasts right now. And so, Those plans are, in some ways, that's scary. But on the other hand, it's really good because everybody's thinking about their capacity and building in capacity for this surge so they can handle these situations with less chaos. But when you do, if you do find yourself in a hospital or an emergency room during those peak times, things are going to be extra difficult. And so the more you can do to convey that you may need a communication device, or that you may need special management for oxygen or something, or that you need a caregiver with you or one of your family members with you 
it's really important to be clear about what that is, what that case is, and why that's so important. And you're going to be talking to people who might be extremely tired and overwhelmed and just trying to do their best. And so for you to have that material planned out in advance, for you to be thinking about that in advance before you walk into that chaotic situation will be really helpful. And that's where the material that the association has developed with a lot of feedback from a lot of clinicians and a lot of other groups can be really helpful for just explaining everything clearly. I think the key message is for everybody to just do what they can to plan ahead for themselves. And we do have a a fair amount of material that people can look at to have that plan. This is a a scary time for our country because a lot of things are changing very quickly and it can be a little bit hard to predict what's going to happen. But we can plan ahead for ourselves, for the people we care about, and that's going to make this a little bit easier. We certainly can control our risk, and everything I'm hearing about the ALS community is we're doing a lot to to reduce our risk, and I also think we can do a lot to, to plan to help any hospital stay or emergency medical crisis to be handled better, and we're trying to support that with the information out on our website, and we'd love to hear more about stories that you may have of your interactions if you have to go to the hospital how it's working, if you're running into problems. That kind of thing is really important to us. If we do hear about a problem, we want to intervene and do what we can to make things better. Thank you so much for that really practical advice and information about uh, how we all should be preparing uh, during the pandemic and particularly families and uh, caregivers and loved ones living with ALS uh, so that we're doing everything we can to stay informed and uh, stay safe during the pandemic. Thank you, doctor, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you again to our guests, Dr. Baron Lerner at NYU and Dr. Neil Thacker at the ALS Association for a look into some historical examples of the healthcare system dealing with strain and uh, some bioethic questions that can help inform the questions that we're asking today, and then looking specifically at some impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the ALS community. There was quite a bit of online information referenced in today's episode, and you can find links to many of those resources in our show notes, so be sure to check those out. And if you have questions or feedback on today's show, you can find Connecting ALS on Facebook and Twitter and submit those questions and feedback to us, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Thank you all so much for listening at ConnectingALS.org and wherever else you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe today if you haven't already. Connecting ALS is produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter of the ALS Association. Thank you all for listening. We will connect with you again soon. Mm